Hello and welcome to Meandering with Myrn, a potpourri podcast by me, veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. Join me as I ponder any and all things animal and human, what we know and what we don't, where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. Cats aren't little dogs, but that doesn't mean that no domestic canine-feline behavioral overlap occurs. Plus, the more domesticated the dog or cat, the greater the potential for overlap may be. And because domestication by its very nature involves humans, any behavioral overlap also will affect the nature of the human-animal bond. No humans, no human-animal bond. Of all the fundamental canine and feline behaviors, the overlap that's perhaps the most obvious relates to social orientation. The quick and dirty school of companion animal behavior maintains that dogs are social and cats are solitary. But recall that context is everything in ethology. How social or solitary a singular dog or cat's social orientation may be depends on multiple factors. A big one, genetic and epigenetic predispositions that support a more solitary orientation in dogs increasingly creates problems for these animals and the people who choose them as pets. On the one hand, We may have a dog who evolved or was bred to survive an environment in which the dog's contact with humans or other dogs was minimal. When they did come into contact, they tolerated each other at best. Dogs from established lines of free-roaming animals who survived as singular predators of small game are one example of this orientation. These dogs display the same solitary orientation as predatory cats. And this social orientation is normal for the dogs in this population because it's vital for their survival in their natural environments. Another canine population descended from long lines of working dogs bred to accomplish their work alone or with minimal interaction with other dogs and people. These include some herding and livestock guarding dogs who independently may oversee their herds or flocks for extended periods in all kinds of weather. When placed in a companion dog setting, these dogs also may apply or attempt to apply that same social orientation to any people or animals in their new homes. While it may sound cool at first to have a dog who herds you or your kids like a herding dog, or who protects your family like a livestock guarding dog protecting a group of sheep, that can get pretty old pretty fast. Especially when you want to go somewhere or do something, and the dog doesn't want you to do it. 
When dogs with either free-roaming or strong working social orientations wind up in a human household with someone who wanted a fur baby to cuddle and to be a fun companion for her highly social other dogs, neither the human nor canine population will be happy. When such situations arise, It's easy to blame the naturally more solitary dog for not living up to human social expectations and fitting into a more social human-canine environment. However, were we to place one of the highly social fur baby cuddlers in a free-roaming solitary dog's natural habitat or the semi-solitary working dog's environment, It's doubtful the canine cuddler would succeed in those environments either. What about cats? A bit of companion animal bond background history describes how their social orientations may get cats and their owners into trouble too. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, when increased numbers of women joined the workforce, a shift occurred in the companion canine and feline populations. Dogs used to staying at home with owner companionship suddenly found themselves alone. When their sometimes doting human companions disappeared, some of these dogs became stressed. And when they did, a fair number began marking the house, mostly with urine, but sometimes with stool. Often these so-called problem dogs were rehomed with folks who stayed at home and the dogs did well. Meanwhile, the now working former owners missed having animal companionship. However, most had learned their lesson regarding those social dogs who would fall apart when left alone. So instead, they decided to get a cat. After all, The conventional wisdom in some sectors of the animal-loving population maintained that everyone knew that cats didn't mind being by themselves. Said conventional wisdom also said that cats came pre-housebroken by their moms. This seemed like a match in heaven. What could possibly go wrong? And then, in a move that changed everything... Some of these people decided to get two cats instead of just one because cats were obviously smaller than the larger Golden's Labs and other dogs they'd rehomed. That way the cats could keep each other company. You know, so they wouldn't get lonely when their owners went to work. And so it came to pass that the outdoor and indoor feline population swelled in many suburban areas at that time when the bulk of kittens still came from free-roaming roots. It was at this point that I decided there was a population of former stay-at-home folks who felt so guilty about enjoying their newfound freedom that they subconsciously believed they should be punished for giving up their dogs than getting cats. Regardless how illogical their thought processes may have been, the fact remained that a fair number of those cats also started marking with urine and stool. 
Some of these cats marked to warn off cats they could see or smell outdoors. Other times, though, their perfume messages were aimed at the other feline resident in their homes. Either way, these people found themselves cleaning up pee and poo in the wrong places yet again. To say that this represented a major breakdown in human-animal communication is putting it mildly. And it didn't do much to reinforce a mutually loving human-animal bond either. Previously, I've spoken or written about my current cat, Bamboo, whom my friends and family refer to as my invisible cat. He joins the ranks of other invisible cats I've owned. All were short-haired, dark brown and black mackerel tabbies of barn cat origins. Put them in long grass or brush in limited light and they disappeared into the shadows without moving an inch. When it's just Bamboo and the dogs and me together, Bamboo is Mr. Congeniality. When he's in hunting mode, though, we all cease to exist. If we attempt to break his concentration at these times, he becomes annoyed and doesn't hesitate to make his displeasure known. But when Bamboo hears a vehicle turning into the driveway, he disappears so fast it seems magical. He remains in that state until visitors return to their vehicles and slowly begin heading down the driveway. As soon as they do, he magically reappears. Some of my cat-loving friends think he deliberately taunts him with his magical powers because he always sits somewhere where they can't possibly miss him as they drive by. When and if the day comes when he materializes in their presence, they feel like they've been blessed. The only way I can categorize Bamboo's social orientation is to say that he's social, solitary, semi-solitary, and possibly divine, depending on the circumstances. In other words, he's pretty much a normal cat. Domestic dog and cat social orientation is like all behaviors. What they do when represents a combination of genetic, epigenetic, environmental, and bond factors. It results in the best option that enables that particular animal with that particular physiological, behavioral, and bond background to achieve the maximum stability at that time. These options form a continuum rather than a fixed scale. It may seem complicated or even messy at first, but it's a beautiful system. You've been listening to a podcast by veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. For more podcasts, commentaries and books about animal behavior and the human-animal bond, and links to behavior and bond sites, check out my website at www.mmilani.com. For more specific information, feel free to email me at mm at 
All rights related to the content of these podcasts are retained by Myrna Milani. The background music, Molly on the Shore by Percy Granger, is used with permission from Katova Arts, www.katova.com.